Father, we, in these moments, have been ushered into a spirit of worship and adoration. And to you, we are very thankful for this. For without your spirit, it would be impossible to worship you rightly. Your spirit in us, the righteousness of Christ in us, cries out that you are righteous, that you are holy, that you are good, that you are merciful, that you are loving, that you are gracious, that you are everlasting, that you are God. And so we're thankful for that. And Lord, we also want to join in these moments with the throng in heaven which cries out, as it says in Revelation 5, that you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That's us. You ransomed us, Lord. And we're eternally grateful to you, and we eternally praise you for this act of love which you gave to us. In that, while we were still sinners, you didn't wait until we were righteous. You, while we were still sinners, died that we might be righteous in you. And Father, you made him who knew no sins to be sin for us, that we might be the very righteousness which you possess. Oh God, these things cause us to worship on this this resurrection morning. And not only from this tribe, but from every tribe under the heavens, you have redeemed men for yourself. And you have made them a kingdom, a priest, a group of priests that stand before God. And we will reign forever and ever because of you. Without you, it would be impossible. We thank you that in this day, years and years ago, you sealed for us the kingdom and the blessings of all of your righteousness and your grace. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. The great benefits of Christ's resurrection. You know, there are two significant Events which occurred in Christ's life which stand above everything else. The incarnation, because without the incarnation, He would not be like us. Hebrews chapter 2, which we will look at in just a few minutes, says clearly that He took on flesh, that He became like us, so that He's not unfamiliar with our sufferings. He suffered. And he died. The incarnation is a tremendous event. God put on flesh and he lived with us. The second event, which is um, above all other events, is the resurrection. You say, well, why not his death? Every man dies. Every man dies. Good men have died for what they believed in. Good men have died for what they taught. Good men have died for kind acts of generosity. 
throughout time, not one of them has been raised from the dead, incorruptible, to never taste suffering or death again, except Christ. It stands above everything else. It stands above everything else. And so, a couple thousand years ago, it came to my mind this morning as the sun was still coming up in the east and I was staring out my east window and it was still dark. You know, when Mary went to the tomb the first time, it was still dark. It was that moment of twilight just before the, the raising of the sun that she went there to find him and <coughs> caress his body and prepare him. And it was in that moment this morning that I thought, Lord, you entered glory in these moments. I mean, it was as if all of heaven had opened up. And in my mind's eye, it was as if I could see him high and lifted up. Think of heaven. Think of heaven that morning. Think of the beauty of our Savior. As the angels wept in His death, so they rejoiced in His glory. You know, the Bible says as a footnote in one verse that heaven celebrates when the sinner comes to Christ. How much more did they celebrate when their Christ came home victorious? I tell you, in those moments, as he walked through the gate and into the heavenly abode, I want to tell you, we've never seen celebration like he saw celebration in that moment. We'll see it one day, but we hadn't seen it yet. And it thrills my soul to be able to join with you, believers and unbelievers alike, on this morning to talk about this great event, the resurrection. These two events separate Christianity from every other religion in the world. No other religion claims that God dwells with us. No other religion claims that God died and then was resurrected. No other religion makes that claim Christianity stands alone. If resurrection, if the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a lie. And we're all deceived. And Paul says we're to be most pity, pitied among all men. The resurrection is crucial to our faith. Don't let anyone deceive you by saying, well, I believe in Christianity. I just don't believe that it was possible that a physical body was resurrected three days later. Then they're not a Christian. They have no hope. Christianity is... People say, well, if they found a body, it wouldn't change my faith. It changed mine. I'm telling you, if they dig Him up, then we're done. We're finished. There's no hope. Close the Bible. Stop preaching. Go about your day and live the best you can because this is all we've got. I tell you, the resurrection is eternally important. And if we give it up, a bodily resurrection, if we give that doctrine up, we've given up our faith. You cannot walk away from the resurrection and remain a Christian. You walk away from it 
You're a reprobate. You're an apostate. And the only hope for you is that God be merciful and convert you to salvation. The resurrection is absolutely true. Listen to the words of Peter in Acts 2.24. Now, I want to set this for you. He's standing in the middle of thousands of eyewitnesses to Christ's life. This isn't some musing of a man of several hundred years after Christ. This is mere days after Christ was resurrected and ascended back to heaven. Days, a few months. All of the people gathered in Jerusalem. There were witnesses there who saw. Paul tells us 500 witnesses saw him resurrected at one time. At one time. And so what I'm saying to you is those witnesses were there. When someone says, how can we be certain that the Bible is true? I say, we know the Acts is true. The, the, the recording of Luke is true. If for no other reason by the fact that it was written during the lifetime of men and women who could have said, that's not true. That's a lie. And nobody said it. Nobody did. Secular history in thousands of years has not found one document that contradicts that was written at the same time that these documents were written. The only hope they've got is to rely on documents written hundreds of years later. I'm telling you, Peter stood up in the presence of men and women and children who had seen Christ, who had seen Him crucified, who had seen Him, some of them had seen Him resurrected. It's to these that Peter preaches, not some distant audience that had no connection. And this is what he said in verse 24. God raised Him up. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I mean, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. Do you hear me this morning? That Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead. Because I'm telling you, if he was lying, someone would have stood up in opposition. Someone in that crowd would have screamed out, No, I can take you to where he is buried. I can show you his dead and decaying body. Don't you believe it? As skeptical and as hateful as the sinful world is towards Christ, if they could have produced any evidence, wouldn't they have? But they couldn't, could they? They couldn't because it's true. God raised Him up. God raised Him up and loosed the pains of death because it couldn't hold Him. Now I want to talk to you about this verse. And I'm going to be a little theological and very practical, okay? This verse presents all our hope and our stay as Christians and as a church. This verse by itself could by itself give us hope and stay. All right? He is alive. That's our hope. He's alive. If he's not alive, there's no hope. Let that sink in to your brain this morning. In other words, what I'm saying to you is no matter what your life has presented you this morning as a form of trial or suffering, no matter how bad your health may be, no matter how tormented you may be over the death of a loved one, no matter how much you may have lost in the previous year, there is hope in the fact that Jesus Christ is alive this morning. It's a hope that no one else but a Christian holds. You are most treasured in God's kingdom.
He loves you. He raised his son up for you. What a beautiful picture of our salvation is contained in these small words. And I want to apply the resurrection to your life today in seven ways, four theological ways and three very practical ways. All right? Theology first. You know, you can't ever get practice before theology. You can't. You'll be wrong. And you can't do theology without practice. You'll be wrong. Paul paints that picture for us, doesn't he? It's necessary for us to begin by trying to clearly understand the purpose of Christ's life and his death before we apply the resurrection. So let's begin there. Jesus, number one point, Jesus' life and death have provided active righteousness and full payment of sin for all who believe in him. Let me say that again. Jesus' life and death have provided full active righteousness and full payment for our sin, those who believe in Him, that is. Jesus' life was necessary so that He could fully identify with His people. You know, you might say, wasn't there a better way to do it? I mean, that very question bothers me. Doesn't it bother you? As if God couldn't have done it. If He could have done it another way, wouldn't He have? That question seems to uh, suggest that there is another way. And I'm telling you, there was no other way. Christ must put on flesh and live with us in this life. Jesus had to do this. In Hebrews chapter 2, listen to these words, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. It was necessary for Jesus to live in a body because we are children of the flesh and so He must be fleshly like us if He will be a high priest who identifies with our suffering. He couldn't do it from heaven. He had to come here, you see. It says that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So it's important that we understand that He put on flesh to identify with our suffering and then also that He defeated our suffering. He could not defeat our suffering. He could not defeat death. He could not defeat Satan lest He put on Adam's flesh and die. That's the only way to do it. You say, well, how do you know that? Because if there were another way, God would have done it. And I tell you that with confidence because it is not as if God did not suffer in the death of His Son. And I'm telling you, had it been easier or better to do it another way, He would have done it another way. There was no other way. He must put on our flesh so He might suffer like us, so He might die to defeat our enemy, death and Satan. It was required. It was required. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. That was a beautiful verse. You know, when someone says, I'm not afraid to die, boy, I question them. I'll stand before you and tell you I'm scared of the process of death. I've been close to it. I've held it in my hands. It's not easy. And anybody who will stand in front of you 
who's never experienced death and tell you death is easy is foolish. Death is difficult. But I want to tell you, when you look at death and the difficulty of it, oh, how sweet it is to know that our Savior walked the path that we must walk. And he set us free who had been lifelong enslaved to this death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be in the flesh to satisfy the wrath of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He had to put on flesh so that when we are tempted, He is able to help us in our temptation. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. Jesus' life was necessary so that He could fully identify with His people. Jesus' life was necessary so that He might gain, so that we might gain His righteousness. He had to live like us so He might replace us. In his life. In other words, his life for our life. Right? How else would we get righteousness if he didn't live a life, human life on this earth? How would he do it? The question asks. And I'd say there's no other way. He must become like us so that he could transfer to us his righteousness. And I'm thinking here of a passage in Romans 5. You know, where it says that that he showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, propitiating the wrath of God, satisfying the wrath of God that was against us. Right. And second Corinthians five twenty one, which is so clear when Paul says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. You see, if Christ wasn't in the flesh, there'd be no righteousness And you and I would be spending a fruitless life trying to earn righteousness, which we could never do. And so God loved us enough to send His Son to identify with our suffering, to defeat our greatest enemy, and to give us His righteousness. What a Savior. What a God. He's gracious, merciful, and loving. Jesus' death absorbed God's wrath that would have been poured out on us. In His death... See, in His life, He identifies with us. In His life, He gives us His righteousness. In His death, He absorbs our punishment and our wrath. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. In other words, when Christ was agonizing, God looked and was satisfied with the payment that had been made. It's finished. It's complete. Therefore, Jesus utters up the words, it is finished. My Father is satisfied. My people are free. I've paid the ransom price. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. By knowledge of what, you might say? Have you ever asked that question of Isaiah 53, 11? I asked it this week, and I think it can only be answered one way, and that is by knowledge of our sin, He accounted us righteous. Do you see it? Do you see it? It says in the text, 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What else can it mean? What knowledge is there that Christ needed to give us his righteousness? He needed the knowledge of our sin. He needed to feel and to suffer the punishment that God intended to pour out on sinners. That knowledge then allows him to count us righteous in Christ. So the life of Christ was so that he might identify with you. You're here and you're suffering. Someone has died in your family. You're facing a terrible, life-threatening disease. You've lost your job. You're being tempted by a coworker into some type of sexual sin. And you're saying, nobody understands what I face. And I'm saying to you, Jesus Christ does because he put on the flesh and was tempted in every way just like you have been, yet without sin, so that when you're tempted, he then might be a sure hope to you saying, beckoning you, come to me and not to sin. Come to me and don't fear death. Come to me and I will set you free. What a beautiful Savior we have. His life was necessary. His life is necessary not only to identify with us, but also so that He might become our righteousness. So you say, I'm working so hard, Pastor. I'm working every day to try to please God. And I say, stop. You can't please Him by the works of your hands. Cling to Christ. Look to Him in faith. And His righteousness in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, is accounted to you as righteousness. What a beautiful Savior. What a loving God. And then we see that Jesus' life and death were necessary so that He might absorb the punishment due us. Romans 3, 23-25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That defines you, sinner. If you're here today without Christ, I'm telling you, you are a sinner. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You have offended His law. You are due just punishment for your sin. You have no hope. Except Christ. You have no hope. It says everyone, me, you, the whole world has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it doesn't stop there. It says and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, in heaven when they said, who will open the scroll?" God put forth the Lamb and said, He will open the scroll. You see? When Satan said, Who will pay for that sinner? Jesus said, I have paid for that sinner. That is my child. They shall live forevermore because I live forevermore. We must understand the necessity of Christ's life and His death. We must understand that only or also we must understand that Jesus' resurrection, second point, is the seal of our eternal life. Get it. Jesus' resurrection is the seal of our eternal life. The first fruits of the resurrection to come for all who believe in Him. I know that's a long point. But it's worth it. Every word is meaningful. Jesus' resurrection. Which resurrection? The one I'm talking about in Acts 2.24, which Peter said God raised him up from the dead, loosing the pains of death because they could not hold him. That resurrection. Lift the first resurrection, even, as the Scripture calls it. The first resurrection. He's the first fruit. 
What is this term, first fruits? Well, the first fruits is an agricultural term. In other words, when the fruit was beginning to ripen, the, the, the vine dresser would go out, the servants would go out, and they would collect fruit from the vine and taste it. And when they tasted sweet fruit, they knew the harvest was near. In other words, God raised him up as a first fruit, the first taste of the incorruptible flesh. He's the first fruits. He is proof. That first fruit is a guarantee of the harvest that is to come. You see, we live in the age of resurrection. Now we do because Christ has been resurrected and now we are waiting for the harvest which is coming. I don't know when it is, but it's coming. Jesus' resurrection is the seal of our eternal life. He, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. Why? Because he's resurrection and the life. He's the seal of eternal life. He's the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come when we're all raised up from the dead. All of those who believe in him. What a beautiful picture. I want to talk to you about the resurrection now. Here we go. Some theological things. First of all, Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of sin and death. Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, na- the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, catch this, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice he said he gives it to us. It's not in the future, it's now. We have victory over sin and death now because he was raised up. His resurrection is unlike any other resurrection you read of in the Bible. Not like Lazarus' resurrection. You see, Lazarus was raised up from the dead in John chapter 11. A sinful man raised up in a sinful body to taste suffering and death again. Jesus was raised up mortal. He was raised up immortal. Switch happened. Jesus cannot die again. He was put in the ground corrupt and he was raised up incorruptible. He'll never taste degeneration nor suffering again. And I gave this thought this week, and I know y'all may think that's weird that I'm thinking about these finer points, but they're so sweet when you think of them. I want you to think about this. Why could the people not fully recognize him? You ever thought about that? Mary sees him, but she doesn't really know who he is at first. Now she knows him once he says who he is, once he calls her name. Then she says, oh, that's Jesus. Nobody's ever called me like that. The road to Emmaus, the disciples, they were with him and they didn't really recognize him. And, then, and some people give this picture that he was somehow deceiving them. He wasn't deceiving them. In his resurrection, he had been not totally changed, but he had been changed, you see. He went in the ground a beaten, marred, even before he was beaten and marred, he was scarred, he was aged, his skin had weathered, his hair had begun to age, it was probably more coarse as he got older, just like ours is. He went through it just like we do. 
He was sagging in some places, probably not quite as fit and toned as he once was as a younger man. All of those things, when he came out of the grave, he wasn't that way anymore. There were no wrinkles. There was no aging. There was no coarse hair. He was a beautiful, risen, incorruptible, immortal body. And so all of the lines of age they had been used to were gone. And so they looked at him and thought, he looks familiar. But is it really him? Even his disciples who were so close to him struggled to recognize him. Not because he did some magician's trick and changed who he was. He was who he had always been, but he was greater now. He had a new body. Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of sin and death. It's the defeat of death in the sense that in his resurrection, we have the promise that even if we die in this life, we will be raised from the dead. It is the defeat of sin because he has killed the, the, the very root of sin. He's killed it in the believer and now has raised him up to new life. Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of sin and death. And we see it in verse 24 when he says, He loosed the pangs of death. You see that? He defeated death is what Peter's saying. He loosed him from it. Because why? It could not hold him. It couldn't. It could not hold him. He was a beautiful risen Lord and he still is. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a first fruit of the resurrection which is to come. If you're hearing my voice and you're a believer, I'm telling you one day we will be raised from the dead. And like he is, so we shall also be. And if that's not worth jumping up and down about, getting excited and doing a little dance, what do we have to dance about in this life? You know, the rebuke of our stodginess in the faith which I'm guilty of so often is to know Christ fully and truly as possible in this life. And when we do, we won't have a problem with being stodgy anymore. We will be celebrating Jesus. In, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. God raised the Lord and He's going to raise us up also. They just speak of it as if it's a foregone conclusion. Doesn't that give you such hope? It's not that Paul's saying, well, I hope he raises us up one day. He says, no, God is going to raise us up just like he did Jesus. By that same power, we will be raised up. Second, uh, first Corinthians, the second passage I want us to see is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, that's that term I put in my definition, of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, it's the first fruit of what is to come, the full resurrection of everyone who believes in Him. His resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. And I said earlier, if He wasn't resurrected, we have no hope and there's no reason for you to be sitting in those pews listening to this message from this book. There's no use in it. Jettison the faith and walk away if you do not believe in the resurrection because you're not a true believer. Somebody said, that's provocative. He shouldn't say that. It's truth. 
I'm telling you, if you're sitting there in the pew this morning saying, well, I don't know if I really, maybe he was spiritually resurrected. Maybe it was, a, you know, just something they said to give people hope. If that's you, be careful. You better beg God to place his faith in your heart because you're walking the tightrope of apostasy and you're headed towards eternal destruction. You cannot be a Christian without the resurrection. Third, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our new life. It's a guarantee of our new life. The life we're living now. 1 Peter verse 3, chapter 1 says, We have been born again. That's that term, new life. Born again, resurrected, regenerated. Listen to this. We have been born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're regenerated in that pew this morning because he was raised up a few thousand, a couple thousand years ago. You couldn't have new life if he hadn't been raised from the dead. Jesus said, it's profitable for me to die and go away so that the Spirit might come, right? And it's the Spirit who regenerates lost men. And if he had not died and been resurrected and ascended back to the Father, he could not have sent or he would not have sent the Spirit. And if he hadn't sent the Spirit, you wouldn't be regenerated. New life, regeneration, that life which you live in communion with Christ is possible only because He was raised from the dead. The resurrection is eternally important to us. Ephesians 2, 5-7, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The key phrase there is in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, you have the promise and the life that you have now, the hope you have now, the resurrected life you have inside of you, the regenerated life, the born-again life, whatever, however phrase you want to use it, the new life, whatever phrase you want to use about that, I'm telling you, only have it because He was resurrected. Because it's only in Christ that you're resurrected. It's only in Christ that you're seated in the heavenly places. It's only in Christ that your sins have been paid for. It's only in Christ. And had He not raised Him from the dead, there would be no completion of the forgiveness of our sins. There would be no completion of the forgiveness of our sins. Which brings me to the last theological point, which is really something. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our justification. All of salvation is tied up in the resurrection. That's why I'm telling you this morning, if you doubt it, if you don't believe it, you need to wrestle with God and beg Him to cause you to believe. Because without belief in the resurrection, there can be no salvation. Romans 4, 25 Paul says, who was delivered, speaking of Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God approved of Christ by raising Him from the dead. In other words, how do we know God was satisfied with the death of Christ and that's enough because He raised Him up from the dead? If He hadn't raised Him up from the dead, there might be a question mark. Well, maybe there's something else that needs to be done for salvation. Maybe there's still work that's unfinished. Maybe Jesus is still trying to pay and suffer so that we might live. 
but he approved and was satisfied, and it's obvious. Why? Because he raised him from the dead. So his resurrection is the guarantee of our justification. So we have four theological truths in which we build these three practical truths on about the resurrection. The four applications of the resurrection just stated lead us to the three practical applications of everyday life, which I hope you leave here and apply. But I want to tell you, you won't apply the last three unless you know the first four. Don't endure theology to try to figure out how to live practically. That's not the way it works. You must be a theologian. You must study His Word to know what He has taught us there. You must. And if you're visiting with us today and you don't go to a church where the Word of God is preached and proclaimed and taught on a weekly and daily basis, I'm begging you and your community, find that. Because you need theology. Theology is life. And it is practice. These three practical points and we close after that. The resurrection inspires us to stand firm in the work of the Lord. The resurrection is our inspiration for working in the Lord. Why would Robert and Megan desire to go to Nepal to talk about a Jesus who's in the ground and dead? Why would the Christians in Sudan this morning lose property, family, health, everything they know in this life for a Jesus who was not resurrected? Why would you why would you walk across the street and share a gospel with a friend who rejects you and persecutes or makes fun of you if he's in the ground? There'd be no reason for it, right? So it is the inspiration for our standing in the work of God. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul gives the longest explanation of resurrection theology, the doctrine of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the longest treatise in the whole Bible on resurrection. And he says at the conclusion, the very last thing, so he wants you to take that home with you, right? Therefore, because all these things are true, my beloved brethren in the Lord, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, you're to stand firm and work in the Lord's work and in His harvest field. Why? Because Christ was resurrected and your work is not in vain. What you do for Him in this life does count for all eternity. I want you to think about that resurrection that we will experience when we're called up by Christ at once and you're standing shoulder to shoulder with men and women and children who came to profess faith in Christ because God used you in their life. You don't think it eternally matters what you do in this life? I tell you, in that day it will matter. When you stand in the presence of Christ resurrected, and you are resurrected, and those who you love and gave your life for are resurrected, you say, no matter what I suffered in this past life, it's not worth counting for the joy that was set before me and the glory of that crown which He had laid up for me as an inheritance. It's at that moment where our eyes realize what our faith said was always there. Some of you are not motivated to good works this morning. 
Some of you have not shared your faith in weeks, months, years, ever. And you say, what does it really matter? Because God's going to save who He's going to save. It'll matter to you when you're standing in the presence of a resurrected Lord, resurrected, and you look around and say, nobody's here because of me. Will Jesus wipe away your tears? Yes, but there will be tears. I don't know about you, but there's going to be some tears for me at the resurrection. And that's not guilt. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm being honest with you. Never, never, never get to the point where you believe what you do does not matter. It does. It eternally matters. And when you're in that day, it will matter. The resurrection causes us, it inspires us to stand firm in the work of the Lord. Secondly, the resurrection is our hope and motivation during the life of trial and during the life of death or during the time of death. Paul says very clearly, as I said to you earlier in verse 32, if this isn't true, the resurrection of Christ is not true, then let's go live for today. Let's go live it up. Drink, eat, and be merry, he says, quoting one of their prophets from Greece. I want to tell you, some of you are suffering right now. I don't know you're suffering. Some of you I do, but not all of you. But all of you are suffering in some way. And you may at some point in your life say, I just don't think it's worth it. I've been there. I'm not judging you. When you face life and death issues, you will begin to question, is this worth what I'm enduring in this life? And the resurrection says, yes. The resurrection says, yes. If He wasn't resurrected, it wouldn't be worth it. But because He's resurrected, we can stand firm and say, I will suffer in this life for what I will gain in Him. The resurrection is eternally significant and it practically leads you to suffer in Christ. And I will say to you, for those of you who have suffered for years with no relief, I said it this morning in Sunday school, I believe it more today than I did a year ago. I believe it. It's not just that you're being refined. It's not just that God is putting you through these things to make you more like Him. He is doing all those things. But I want to tell you this. If you're suffering for Him, we may pity you, but in God's eyes, you are to pity us who are not suffering. We look at the Sudan and we look at the Middle East and we look at China and we look at India and we say those poor souls are being persecuted And I'm telling you, they're on their knees this morning saying those poor souls in America never get to suffer for our great Jesus. Bless their heart. Oh God, please be merciful enough to let them suffer like us. I'm telling you, your theology becomes very practical when you go through hard times. I will never forget the day I sat in front of a Chinese pastor and listen to him recount his sufferings in Shaco Springs. I'll never forget when a little lady in, from China, originally living in the United States, asked this great man of the faith, one of their heroes, kind of like Piper is to me, to her, this man was that guy. And she said, how did you share your faith 
undeterred in the face of persecution and he without batting an eye. I had on the translation headphones without batting an eye pointed his finger back at her and said, how do you share your faith in a land of freedom? How can he say that? Because he knows the resurrection is true. And he says, I, even if they take my body and kill me, will live again. Suffering and persecution and trials can and will be endured only if we understand the resurrection. Finally, the resurrection is the reason we should not continue to give ourselves to sinful desires. We've been resurrected with Christ to new life. And so we shouldn't give ourselves to sinful desires. Paul says this in Romans 6, verses 11 through 13. He says... So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's that word, in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no domination over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. The resurrection gives us the ability to resist sin. So I spoke to those who are suffering persecution and trial and tribulation. But now I want to say something to all of us who face temptation to sin every day. And we face it this way. Well, I wish I was strong enough to withstand that, but I'm just not. And can't you hear Christ saying, yes, you are strong enough. Because I was resurrected for you. And I've placed that resurrection life in you. And so now you can flee temptation. Now you can resist the evil desires that are inside of you. It is possible. Only resurrection believers say it's possible to resist sin and temptation. You see... The doctrine of the resurrection is important to your life. You will not fight sin if you think this is the only life you've got. You will not fight sin if you think the desires of this world are worth whatever you've got to give to get them. And the only way you won't think they're worth whatever you have to sacrifice to get them is if you know in your resurrected Lord Jesus Christ you have the mercies of God eternally. So the resurrection is eternally and practically relevant to where you live and I live every single day. And so I go back to what I said at the beginning. As I was on my knees praying over this message this morning and I looked out that east window and the sun was now rising and I had that image in my mind of the celebration of heaven over the victory of Christ. And I want to say that that right there spurred me on to live a sanctified life. They celebrated the victory over death and sin and now I can every day celebrate the victory over my sin. How? By when the temptation or the desire rises, running to Christ and saying, you're my righteousness. 
you must keep me from this. And you can, and I do believe in you. And at that moment, when sin is defeated, practically in my life, I say, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. Christ has defeated my sin. Practically, in my life. And that spurs on to another instance where you say, now, when you get the exhilaration of that, joy and worship with Christ, next trial and tribulation, temptation that comes, you want to do the same. It spurs you on. The resurrection. The resurrection is the event of history which joins us in one moment to Christ now and forevermore so that we will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I'm not ignorant of the fact that there are many in this room who possibly are lost. And we've all been that way at one point, Lord. If it were not for your grace, we would still be that way. And so I ask, God, that you be merciful and gracious and give them faith this morning. Help them to see their sin. Help them to see the beauty of you and your resurrected body. Help them to look on the one who was pierced for their transgressions. Oh, Jesus, please help us to understand how wonderful our resurrected life is and can be because of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Just a couple of